This episode contains discussions of Canada's residential school system and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Please take care while listening. Resources for support are available on our website should you need them. In 1987, the Kitsan and Wet'suwet'en First Nations took the province of British Columbia to court to assert their sovereignty and inherent rights to their traditional lands. This historic case, now known as Delgamook v. British Columbia, ignited after the BC government allowed clear-cut logging on Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en lands without any consultation. It was sort of an indicator of where things were at at that point. There was simply... The province denied that there ever were any Aboriginal rights or titles. David Patterson was on the legal team representing the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en. One of the first major hurdles they faced in court was getting the Canadian legal system to recognize Indigenous oral histories as evidence, something that had never been done before. There was an attempt to actually demonstrate to the court the validity of oral history through scientific evidence. They recounted a house story from the House of Madik, a Gitsan oral history, or Adwak. It describes a community living at the banks of a small lake, being disrespectful of the fish and creating waste through overharvesting. And in response to this misbehavior, a giant grizzly came tearing down the mountain slope towards the lake, ripping up trees and causing all level of mayhem and crashed into the lake and the lake over onto the village, wiping it out. Next, the team brought in some experts. One was an ethnobotanist who did testing at the bottom of Seely Lake and one was a, a geological expert who also did testing. And both of them independently came up with results that there had been a landslide into this lake some 4,300 years ago. I think they came in within 50 years of each other in terms of the description of what happened. And we also had a witness who had been an eyewitness to a major landslide and described what it sounded like and what it looked like. Um, and that very much corresponded to what the adult described. The team explained to the judge that the story was a description of an event that had been passed down over centuries. The judge had some trouble understanding what to make of it. And uh, the lawyer who was speaking at the time said, well, if you were watching it, you might call it a, a landslide. And um, if it was an insurance agent, he might have called it an act of God. And, um, and the uh, Gitsan referred to it as a giant grizzly bear. But the fundamental fact um, is unmistakable that what they saw happen regardless of whether they described it the way you would have described it, was um, provable and demonstrable. But that same BC court judge refused to recognize these oral histories as a legitimate form of evidence. And so what the judge said is all of this oral history is just stuff people have been told. They have no knowledge of any of these things. And furthermore, it's polluted because all of the evidence is coming from people who have a vested interest in the outcome. That caused the judge a great deal of problems. And as a result, he threw out almost all of the evidence of the Gitsana Wet'suwet. Because the Canadian legal system struggles to recognize Indigenous truths, at times representing outright hostility to these truths. It is interested in detail, in maintaining ways of knowing and being that made sense within colonial court systems 
core tenets that rest on rejections of indigenous ways of knowing and being. So what the court was grappling with is not directly the question of what is truth, but what can be identified as truth in a legal proceeding. The Supreme Court eventually recognized oral history as a legitimate form of legal evidence. But this case still represents the hostility towards Indigenous knowledges and histories within the colonial legal system. Up until that decision, there was an enormous handicap for Indigenous peoples attempting to bring materials before the court simply because the European court system was not suited to the reception of the kind of evidence which was valid among Indigenous peoples. There is a fundamental gap between how many Canadians see this country and the realities of living under a colonial settler state. The commitments made in public by our governments to truth and reconciliation often do not match their actions behind closed doors. Arguments made in courts across this country often reveal a far more overtly aggressive state, one highly intolerant to Indigenous rights and titles, and a country deeply rooted in colonial practices and ways of knowing and being. From courtrooms to truth commissions, this episode is about the ways the Canadian settler state continues to suppress the legal systems, governance structures, and lived experiences of Indigenous peoples, and the difficulty seeking justice and truth within colonial legal systems. We'll also look at the profoundly important work of those fighting to make the truths of Indigenous peoples known and the personal toll this work often takes. We're talking with David Patterson about the barriers of getting truths recognized in the Canadian courts. And there's a difference between detail and truth. And what you heard at the TRC, and you recognize it when you see it, is truth. But the court doesn't function that way. And with Marion Buller about the difficult work of truth-telling in this country through the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry. Fear of the truth, fear of the truth coming out, of people knowing, of the public knowing what actually happened. Because if people don't know, they can't hold you to account. My name is Rai Moran. This is Tapwewin, talking about what we know and what we believe. A podcast from the territories of the Lekwungen peoples and the library and archives of the University of Victoria. I got to know David Patterson through my work with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. David is one of the lawyers that fought hard as an advocate for survivors in the early stages of residential school litigation. I'm David Patterson. I'm a lawyer practicing in Vancouver. I've been practicing in the field of then Aboriginal, now Indigenous people's rights since about 1985. And uh, I'm currently the chair of the Committee on Indigenous Peoples for the International Bar Association. Having worked in the field of Indigenous rights for several decades, David has been a part of many landmark moments in Indigenous law. From the Haida Nation's defense of Athil Gwai, Lyle Island, to the negotiation of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Beginning in the mid-90s, David became involved in the early stages of what would become another major Indigenous legal battle. And 
I got involved with residential school cases in the fall of 1994. And it was Gitsan who um, were the original plaintiffs in the um, Blackwater case, including Willie Blackwater himself. Later on, that case picked up more people. And eventually, by the time it went to trial, I think there were about 30 people involved. There is a long history of resistance by survivors, their families, and even entire communities to the abusive residential school system. And starting in the 1990s, survivors began turning to the courts as a way of pursuing justice for the abuse they experienced, filing increasing numbers of civil and criminal suits against former residential school staff, the churches, and the federal government. When David joined the legal team representing a number of survivors in what would become the Blackwater case, the hope was that they might be able to reach a settlement between all parties as a way of avoiding a prolonged trial. And the decision was to start with the Alberni School, in part because there were a number of cases there and Arthur Flint had already been criminally convicted. In fact, he pleaded guilty. There was, wasn't even a trial over the issue. They also decided to begin with the Alberni Residential School because it had been run by the United Church. We thought the United Church of all of the various churches involved in residential schools would be the one most amenable to reaching some sort of a settlement. I think we had a hope that that we might avoid the necessity of trial, that we might be able to negotiate some sort of agreement, which, as it turned out, the United Church shortly thereafter retained insurance counsel, whose job is to fight claims, not settle them. And um, the... Um, case was on. The first major task of the Blackwater team was establishing joint liability of both the church and the government for the abuses suffered by former students. And at every turn, the government and church both tried to argue their way out of responsibility. And so we got into a great big argument that actually lasted about three weeks, where the government said, well, the church ran these schools and all we did was pay tuition. Um, the church turned around and says, well, actually, they were government schools. We just provided uh, teachers and staff there. The United Church even tried to argue that it should not be held responsible because they were a charitable organization and that being held liable for the crimes of their employees would potentially discourage participation in future charitable activities. Um, we argued that it was a joint enterprise, that both of them had a stake in the process, both of them were committed to it from the beginning, they collaborated in it at every level and so on, and ultimately that argument succeeded. In a large part of this podcast, we're talking about not only the power of truth-telling, but of course the forces that operate against those truths coming out. And I've heard it firsthand from survivors that were even involved in that case, that that process of cross-examination over and over again was brutal. and. Can you paint us a bit of a picture in terms of setting kind of the environment in which these truths were emerging and some of the tactics that were being used by the church in Canada at that time? Well, I hesitate to use tactics because um, lawyers were doing what lawyers always do. They go to win cases and they ask questions and they try to get clear and consistent answers. but a bit of the same kind of story in a very different way that you had in Delgamook, and that is you have people who have no written records of what happened to them. So there, there was very little contemporary evidence, and you have people recalling traumatic experiences that happened decades earlier. 
As children too, right? As young children. I had cases going back to the 30s, you know. You had the kind of evidence that you would expect of somebody trying to recall these sorts of details, but it was impossible you know, now when you went to the residential school, how did you get there? I got taken on a boat. And where did you sit on the boat? Well, I sat here. And what were you wearing? Um, which way were you facing? Who was sitting next to you? Who was sitting behind you? Where was the brother sitting? Um, now, was were you able to see him when, where, where, like massive amounts of details? The questioning would go on for days. The questioning of traumatic events. I saw Things like, for example, fellow was asked a question about his abuse and was obviously being traumatized and didn't say anything, was just sitting there. I don't know, he may have been gathering his thoughts, he may have been wishing he was the hell out of there, who knows, but the lawyer for Canada says, uh, let the record show that it's now been two minutes since I asked that question. You know, sort of leaving the inference because of course time won't show up on a transcript but leaving the inference that he's taking his time to make up something. Government and church council demanded a level of precision and detail from survivors that was also impossible to provide. I have to admit that even for me, hearing these stories now makes me beyond infuriated. I saw cases where people would tell stories of more than one occasion of abuse but would get the facts muddled between them. Um, in a standard court proceeding, that's the end of the case. And very often you would get asked for evidence about, you know, somebody would come into the dorm and molest them. And, and so there'd be a great deal of description. And then the lawyer would sum up and say, that was the first occasion, right? And they would say that. And then what was the next occasion? And how many uh, days later or weeks later or months later was that? And what day of the week was it? And what time of day was it? And so on and so forth. And then carry on the second one and then try and go to a third one. Well, there may have been 30 or 40 assaults. And at the end of the day, what you would see people is just bail out of the thing because they couldn't deal with this. And in their head, they had no way of separating that many incidents anyways. It was all just one great big trauma that was indistinguishable. And what was clear was that somebody had suffered multiple um, sexual assaults at the hand of an adult predator. And so this whole process became enormously traumatizing for individuals because they would walk away from it feeling like somebody was accusing them of being a liar, you know, that they weren't believed. And it was, it was very, very difficult uh, and required a great deal of courage to essentially put their way through that. But the denial of someone's truth is also a form of violence. It was a very, very difficult case. It was very hard on the plaintiffs. It was uh, aggressively fought and they were aggressively cross-examined. Um, there were uh, two suicides in the course of that case, um, one before the trial began and one during the trial. Um, so it, w it was a, a very tough haul for people and, um, and uh, um, it can't be said enough the, uh, the, the weight that those people took on their shoulders because they eventually set a pattern, for better or worse, which um, became the foundation for the ultimate settlements that occurred later on. 
as a mechanism that supported and justified domination for so long, the Canadian legal system was simply not equipped to handle with care the nuances of residential school survivors' claims. European laws and practices that had been weaponized to suppress Indigenous rights were used again within the courts to diminish, challenge, and poke holes in the lived experiences of residential school survivors. The truths of survivors were questioned simply as a matter of course. And there's a difference between detail and truth. And what you heard at the TRC, and you recognize it when you see it, is truth. But the court doesn't function that way. The court is functioning on the basis of evidence and what precisely has been proved and not proved. And it was a particularly unsuitable environment for bringing these kinds of cases, much as the court has largely been an unsuitable place for handling Aboriginal rights cases, though it's become more open in recent decades. When details vary, um, how do you get to the essence of what is true? And what does it mean for something to be true? And, you know, if you can't reconcile, whether it's through compensation and damages or apologies or whatever, but if you can't reconcile without acknowledging somebody's truth, then you've got to be able to find a way of determining what truth means in these circumstances. And truth doesn't mean that it was a Wednesday and not a Saturday. Who cares? And my experience is that you saw the truth, <laughs> like you, you could identify it. It was sitting there in front of you and it only required you to open your eyes and open your ears and listen. Blackwater was only the beginning of the flood of lawsuits filed by survivors against the government and churches. By October of 2002, more than 11,000 cases had been filed by former residential school students. Faced with an overwhelming number of claims, the Canadian government and churches agreed to begin negotiations on a settlement. When the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement was finally approved by all of the participating parties in 2006, it would go on to award over $5.5 billion to residential school survivors. It was the largest settlement in Canadian history at the time. A portion of the funds from the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement were set aside by survivors for the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC spent eight years diligently working to collect the testimony of survivors and reconstruct the history of the residential school system. To do this work, the Commission also needed access to records and archives held by the Canadian government and various religious entities. And despite parties of the settlement agreement agreeing to produce any and all relevant documents to the commission when requested, roadblocks were continuously placed in the path of the TRC. 
something I discussed with my producer, Karina. Um, so what kinds of difficulties did you have at the TRC with obtaining the documents you needed to conduct your work? So this is a huge, complicated, hours-long question. Uh, so I don't know if we necessarily have time to cover everything. There was already early tension around document production between the TRC, the government, and Catholic entities. So government record production was a whole other kettle of fish. Um, so you have all these religious entities. And, and first of all, I mean, we know more as a society now about who these entities are and how they operated. But remember, going back in time, we were still kind of at the discovery phase in terms of where these sets of records were. Then we had to go to individual government departments. And that was like, I mean, just roadblock and barrier after barrier after barrier. We had to negotiate all these individual MOUs with departments. I mean, everyone was different. They were always changing. They would take time. Then it actually came down to the production and there was like different scoping and stuff. And then on the Library and Archives Canada side of things, Canada basically took the position they read into the, the definition of their obligations and said, shall compile in an organized manner and provide access to their archives. And they said, well, that sentence is actually two different things. We have to compile and we have to provide you access to our archives, but we don't actually have to produce anything from our archives. So that was a big challenge because there was tons of records there. We ended up pulling something like, well, well over a million documents out of Library and Archives Canada on residential schools. What we found along the way too is, is that there were, you know, Library and Archives Canada, I, I, I honestly believe through no fault of their own, uh, as a country, we have done a extraordinarily poor job in investing in cultural heritage and also a very poor job in investing in archives generally. So we found that they had this massive backlog of boxes that hadn't even actually been accessioned yet. So the boxes had been sent from the government department to Library and Archives Canada. I mean, some of these boxes literally had been sitting there for like 20 years, 30 years with a big layer of dust on the top of them, had never been opened. We don't, didn't know what was in them and we opened them up. And that was so important because in some of those documents, we actually found proof of attendance that then actually directly changed compensation to survivors where they had been previously denied those years of attendance at the schools and then received compensation uh, according to the, to the government afterwards because so much of the compensation process relied on actual paper evidence saying you were in the school this particular year and of course due to these archival processes and stuff getting lost and burnt down or destroyed, a lot of survivors were not given their proper um, um, compensation. I mean, there were so many steps along the way that were very, very difficult. Um, at the end of the day, it should have been a lot easier. And it was really, 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 really difficult. Uh, and it was difficult, like on an emotional level, it was difficult on a, on a logistics and operations level. Uh, like on a on a safety level, too. I mean, we would have like, I had people yelling at me like all the time. Um, like, you know, uh, honestly, I mean, this is truth be told, like Catholic lawyers screaming at me, like red faced, like sort of standing over me and super aggressive when I was asking for documents, government officials doing the same thing. Yeah. Like yelling, yelling. And, uh, it was just a really, it was a really hard place to be in to tell you the truth. Um, 
and I know the commission was concerned about a lot of things, is one, we couldn't ever undersell the responsibilities that we had. We couldn't, we couldn't self-censor in a way, or we couldn't agree to anything less than the most principled of approaches. And, and that meant full, comprehensive, complete, look everywhere, we want it all searches. Uh, because we couldn't do anything else other than that. Like, I mean, we, the, on, a, on a most fundamental level of principle and responsibility and accountability to, the, to our mandate, we couldn't do anything less than that. And there was no excuse for parties, religious entities, government of Canada, to not be prepared. We remember at the end of the day, the TRC was just there to fulfill their own agreement the parties settled this and came up with this deal on their own. So when we showed up and started knocking on doors and people said, well, we're not ready or this is too difficult or this is too hard, it was kind of like, well, what do you mean? Like you've had years, if not decades, to prepare for this and now we're here. Get it going. During our time at the Commission, we heard from many survivors and communities about the pressing need for an inquiry to investigate violence against Indigenous women and girls. In the TRC's final report, the 41st call to action pressed for the establishment of a national inquiry. After decades of work by grassroots activists, community members, survivors, and their families, in 2015, the federal government finally agreed to set aside the funds needed for the long-awaited inquiry. And Marion Buller was asked to lead the work as Chief Commissioner. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marion Buller. A member of the Mistawasis First Nation, Marion completed her law degree here at the University of Victoria before beginning her career in civil, criminal, and human rights law. And then uh, I was commission counsel for the Caribou Chilcotin Justice Inquiry. Very intensive learning opportunity for me. And after that, I uh, applied to be appointed as a provincial court judge. And I was. Then I was a provincial court judge here in BC. For 22 years, I was the first First Nations woman to be appointed to any court in British Columbia, uh, a responsibility I, I took very seriously. Here in BC, she also started First Nations Indigenous Courts and the Aboriginal Healing Family Courts. And uh, after 22 years, I was appointed as a chief commissioner for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Now I'm back practicing law part-time uh, to kind of complete the circle and very honored to be the chancellor of the University of Victoria. What a journey, hey? And, and it's not over yet. <laughs> it's not, not over yet. By any Speaking with Marion, it was disappointing to hear that many of the difficulties we experienced at the TRC in trying to gain access to records, persisted when the National Inquiry began their work. Oh, accessing evidence, always a problem. With the TRC, with the work we did at the National Inquiry. The greatest difficulties the inquiry experienced were with the RCMP, which accounted for 39% of all unsolved cases reviewed by the inquiry. The Government of Canada resisted disclosing necessary RCMP documents, and many of those received by the inquiry were effectively meaningless because they were so heavily redacted. 
The government also provided the inquiry with a production schedule that saw some files compiled and ready almost two years after the inquiry's closure. Considering the government also refused to grant the inquiry its requested two-year extension, this production schedule was a major roadblock to truth-telling efforts. Uh, when we were doing our work at the National Inquiry and, and requesting documents, I knew from the get-go that we weren't going to get a lot of it. I just knew because that's how government works. I knew that from being a lawyer. I knew that from being a judge. And I knew that there would be hoops that we would have to jump through to get documents. And even then we wouldn't get all that we wanted or needed because of fear. And why? Uh, why does that happen? Uh, fear. It's just fear of being caught out. Fear of transparency. Fear of the truth. Fear of the truth coming out. Of people knowing. Of the public knowing what actually happened. Because if people don't know, they can't hold you to account. And, I mean, speaking from first-hand experience, it was emotionally expensive, too. Like, the emotional labor associated with this, just the level of frustration, the feeling of uh, just sometimes not winning. It was, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it weighs on, it weighs, I think. It does. Yeah. It does. And that's part of the strategy. Mm-hmm. And... I think the saving grace that I had through the work we did at the National Inquiry is knowing that. Mm. The strategy is just simply to wear you down. And so what you have to do is just dig in your heels and say, okay, bring it on. While there has been some progress in recent years improving access to important government documents and information, reflecting back on my own efforts to gain access to records, there's still a resigned realism that I hold that is very similar to what Marion describes. In hindsight, I would have approached my work at the TRC and NCTR with the recognition that we would be lied to, that information would be held back, and that everything we were told was subject to change. If I were to start all over again, I would be guided by the knowledge that withholding information is one of the oldest games in the book, and the bedrock through which powerful institutions maintain their authority. Despite the difficulties, after two and a half years, the National Inquiry released its 1,200-page report and their 231 calls to justice, marking another major milestone in expanding knowledge of important and necessary Indigenous truths. I think now, as a result of our report in particular, uh, the National Inquiry's report, I think people now are starting to grasp how Indigenous women have been marginalized. Uh, And the reasons for the marginalization have been beyond their control, basically, because of colonization. I think people are starting to become a little more accepting of our use of the word genocide because the... uh, the numbers keep increasing. And I think now uh, so much is coming to light about racism, systemic racism in particular in policing. We're talking about systemic racism that was never as part of our national uh, vocabulary. 
so there are a lot of things that are kind of bubbling to the surface. Genocide, systemic racism, marginalization, uh, either incompetent or inadvertent or something, policing, the impact of the residential school system that continues through generations, uh, the fact that uh, children are still being taken into foster care at alarming rates. I think these are all starting to bubble, bubble up. What I'm finding, though, is how media is, well, some members of the media, anyway, are starting to change how they report. And I'm finding some comfort in that. In 2019, when the inquiry released their report, they included a supplemental legal analysis of genocide, providing a background for the inquiry's findings. I know one of the things that the inquiry did very specifically was issue a complete and separate report on the use of this term in a very uh, substantial legal analysis, presumably because we knew this was going to be an uphill battle, trying to educate Canadians on the presence of such horrific human rights violations and, and really crimes against humanity right in our midst. And perhaps you can just give us a bit of a, a window into that. Well, you're correct. We did the supplemental report on genocide because we knew there would be pushback and denial. Um, and there still is. But uh, that's why we had that report done. And... Um, you know, it, to me, it's just so obvious when you go through the United Nations definition of what genocide is, we ticked off all the boxes and then some, uh, which was quite shocking even for me. I, I wasn't expecting that. If anything comes out of the work that we have done, it's to educate the media, if nobody else, that there's more than one type of genocide uh, or more than one type of vision of genocide or portrayal of genocide than what has happened in the past. And uh, my dear colleague, Commissioner Robinson, said genocide in, term, in the context of MMIWG2S is death by a thousand cuts, but still death. And so uh, a lot of our work we knew was going to, we're going to have to educate the media about how they portray this. And now the word is being used, sometimes even in the right context. But at least now, it's part of our national vocabulary. And I think that's important because that's the truth. Digging into your work of the, the reports that you authored and the team authored at the, at the inquiry. So the reports are out. They've been made public. Uh, what are the truths that people have heard now, do you think? And, and what are the truths that people are still grappling to understand? Well, when I look back on the work that we did do at the National Inquiry, what I learned and was so, and, and I'm still very impressed by, is how every day family members and survivors of violence, as well as the missing and murdered, had to fight for recognition and acknowledgement of their humanity. That they had to fight for acknowledgement of their intelligence. They had to fight to be acknowledged as a human being. They had to fight the assumptions 
that they were drunk or drug-seeking when they were seeking legitimate medical attention. Uh, the education system abandoned them. The uh, child welfare system and policing saw them and still see them as uh, easy prey. Uh, they've been pushed to the margins of their own communities, their own families, and they have to fight to be acknowledged as human beings. And imagine that every day to have to fight for your legitimacy as a human being. It, it's uh, mind-boggling that you have to do that. That humanizing seems... Well, so critically important because so much of, a, of what we're talking about here are human rights, violation of human rights, inherent human rights. Uh, I mean, injuries to humanity as a whole by virtue of, you know, these long-standing patterns of colonization. And well, you know, it's... It just shows how embedded colonial thinking, colonization is in not only... So the the social structure of Canada, but internationally, as well, uh, that there has to be this fight for the acknowledgement of humanity, and how how wrongheaded that is. And I hope uh, in my grandchildren's generation, they'll look back at us and and shake their heads and think, "What crazy thinking was that?" that people had to fight to be recognized as human beings. How fuzzy thinking was that? <laughs> uh, that's my hope for the future, that they do that. Towards the end of our conversation with David, he described a case he is currently working on, one where familiar roadblocks are already appearing. The Haida are involved in a court case against the province of British Columbia for title to all of Haida Gwaii. But the Haida Nation and the federal and provincial governments are also negotiating outside of court. And in August of 2021, they formalized an agreement for their negotiations, titled A Framework for Reconciliation. David read us a portion of the agreement. British Columbia recognizes that the Haida Nation has inherent title throughout and rights with respect to Haida Gwaii terrestrial, that is the land base, including the inherent right of self-government. Canada recognizes inherent Haida title and rights throughout Haida Gwaii terrestrial, including the inherent right to self-government. The parties recognize that the inherent title and rights, Haida title and rights, include the right to make laws and manage lands and resources in Haida Gwaii. But as there is a court case pending, much further down in the text of the agreement, there are provisions that read. This agreement and any related negotiations are without prejudice and cannot be used, construed, or relied upon by any party in any proceeding as evidence or admission of the nature, scope, or content, or geographic extent of Haida Nation's Aboriginal rights, including title. Nothing in this agreement will be construed as affirming, recognizing, altering, abrogating, or derogating from any title or rights of the parties. But what you have... What you have here, in my view, is the two-faced position of the government, which is that, yeah, sure, we'll sit down and talk with you, we'll negotiate, and we'll negotiate on fairly broad grounds, but if you don't cut a deal with us, here's what's waiting for you in court, and none of this is going to count for spot. And it's about time, in my view, that um, 
quite frankly, the government said the same thing in public that it's saying in courts, and that the government, on behalf of all of the people of Canada, including the Indigenous people, take a position that it stands by, and it takes that position in negotiations, and it takes that position in court, and it says, if we have to go to court, we're going to go to court over the things that we can't resolve in negotiation, but we're not going to backtrack. I couldn't agree with you more there, David. And I, I've said previous, and I, I mean, I say it again now, that if you want to get a sense of the true Canada in many ways, look at what Canada is saying in court, because you get a very, very, very different uh, approach, uh, uh, hostility. And, you know, there. Uh, you know, we're supposed to have open court. It's supposed to be transparent. But in reality, it's not anywhere near as open as these public uh, demonstrations and, and these public uh, uh, agreement signings, all that kind of stuff. I mean, what happens in court and, and oftentimes the words that are shared there um, are not heard by the public. And they represent a Canada that still does not see the rights of Indigenous peoples as being in the best interest of the collective whole. And of course, these are things that run directly contrary to UNDRIP and many, many other uh, you know, fund- fundamental human rights uh, processes. Well, and that's an important point there because, in fact, we're dealing with two of the most progressive on Indigenous issues, governments in the country, and the only two governments that have formally adopted UNDRIP. And this is what we're getting from them. I guess the question that I have in relation to Indigenous peoples is whether or the extent to which they should be forced to resolve their claims in the colonizer's court. And we're not anywhere near there yet. But there's no reason in principle why um, somebody isn't hauled before a court in an Indigenous community or in a First Nation and said, explain yourself, and there will be consequences. And why shouldn't there be consequences? Why do we concede that the um, European courts are the ultimate decision maker in this process? They were not upholding the rights of Indigenous people. They were upholding the rights of settlers to take their land. And that's been the story throughout colonial era. So how long this period lasts, I don't know. But it is important that that the courts not be seen as the solution to the problem. You know, our existing methods for dispute resolution really aren't working. And you know what the first question should be, in my view, is, well, what would be the traditional Indigenous way of dealing with this type of problem? And let's learn from it. Let's see what we can do to make our issue, our our problem solving better. Progress has been made in the past few years in increasing access to documents and records held by Canada and other entities. The establishment of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation created a home for records and stories of residential school survivors, ensuring those truths were preserved for future generations. The 2014 Supreme Court decision acknowledged Tsilkotin title, and Canada and BC's adoption of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples all likewise represent positive steps forward. But as David's description of the Haida rights and title negotiations, or the recent disappointing outcome of the Nuchatlet court case illustrate, 
there's significant progress that still needs to happen to ensure our institutions fulfill their promises and obligations and that the truths and rights of Indigenous peoples are respected and upheld across this country. This podcast was created through the direct teamwork of an incredible group of people. It was written and produced by Karina Greenwood and myself, editing and consulting by Cassidy Vilburn Baracus, mixing and mastering by Mateus Terra, and music by myself, Ramaran. Special thanks to the University of Victoria Libraries team that assisted in countless ways on this production. Marci to our guests, Marion Buller and David Patterson. Tapwewin is made possible through the University of Victoria Strategic Framework Impact Fund and with direct support from the University of Victoria Libraries and CFUV Radio. This podcast was created in unceded Lekwungen and Wissanic territories. 